Grace, mercy, and peace be to you from God our Father and the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, it was Oscar Wilde who said, I can resist anything but temptation. And think about that. <laughs> temptation, that's what we're going to talk about today. Temptation and how it relates to you and me and Jesus. So, what tempts you anyway? Here we are just barely starting up this 40-day season of self-denial, as Lent is often viewed as. And you've probably already seen some of your online friends go offline from Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, your various social media, or whatever screen addiction it might be for them. Maybe for you, it's YouTube or TikTok that you'd like to take a break from. Or you may just want to unplug yourself altogether from your iPhone or tablet Android, for at least part of the day anyway, during this sacrificial season. And it's all in an effort to sort of digitally detox, right? Which is probably a healthy habit anytime. And perhaps in place of some of these things that you're giving up, you might also consider substituting in some more helpful habits, spiritually speaking. The big three, um, historically, for the Lenten season are fasting, praying, and almsgiving. And if you're fresh out of alms, I'm sure dollars will do. Come to think of it, though, fasting itself isn't exactly subbing in something, is it? It's still depriving ourselves of something. Maybe something difficult to give up, like chocolate, red meat, or carb-loaded foods, including breads and sweets, which are definitely my weak points when it comes to giving something up. Love those cinnamon rolls. Or not. You may choose not to observe Lent in this kind of way at all. As one pastor friend of mine put it this way, I'm giving up Lent for Lent. Jesus gave it all up for those 40 days and 40 nights, though, didn't he? Our gospel text is very careful to point that out, which is interesting. Matthew records it in those exact terms. Matthew says, 40 days and 40 nights. And the reason why that's interesting is because traditionally Jews would fast from sunrise to sunset and not for a complete 24-hour period. Same thing with Muslims in their traditional fasting season. So it was more common back then to hear someone say, I'm fasting for three days, or I'm fasting for seven days. But you wouldn't normally hear somebody describe it uh, this way, that I'll fast for seven days and seven nights. But who could imagine doing what Jesus did? Could you picture yourself out there in the desert for the full 40 round-the-clock fasting days that Jesus did? I mean, I get hangry at day one at 11 a.m. if I haven't had some substantial food for the day. But I'm getting ahead of myself. The context for Jesus' temptation in the wilderness from our Matthew 4 reading today is the end of Matthew 3. And that's where Jesus gets baptized. We looked at this just a few weeks ago. You recall that scene? Jesus comes up out of the water. Verse 17 reads, And a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Remember that? The devil does. When Jesus first gets out to the wilderness for his temptation, what's the first thing that the devil says to him? If you are the Son of God, 
if, didn't God the Father in heaven just declare it so? That Jesus indeed is the Son of God? So already the tempter is getting to it. Subtly undercutting, casting doubt on God's word. Once again, where have we seen that before? Well, it's right there in Eden, isn't it? There the crafty serpent says to Eve, did God really say you should not eat of any tree in the garden? So it's the same old MO with the devil as it was way back there in the beginning, is now and will be until judgment day. The devil throws shade on God's word and thus seeks to erode our perception of God's righteous character. And it starts with first calling into question the integrity of God's word. The devil is still at it today with that same strategic attack on the trustworthiness and on the authority of God's word. There are ministers as well as whole denomination churches today, all of whom still identifying themselves as Christian, but they do not submit to the authority of God's word. Often they start by asserting that God's word, the Bible, isn't really God's holy word. It's only the product of man alone, albeit insightful men who were inspired with a little eye for inspired. But the claim of these spiritual skeptics is that the Bible is most certainly not a collaboration of the Spirit of God working through man. Skeptics claim rather that there is nothing supernatural at all going on here with the Holy Scriptures. So what do these skeptics do then when they read through the Bible and come upon a verse like this from the Apostle Peter? No prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. That's from 2 Peter 1. Verses like this, and there are plenty more verses declaring, thus saith the Lord, from both the Old and the New Testaments all throughout the Bible. These verses give skeptics fits. Why? Because these skeptics and clerical callers still want to cling to the label Christian, but they have a very difficult time navigating such bold claims from Scripture when it ascribes to itself divine origin. When Bible passages get so bold as St. Peter saying, men spoke from God, it puts these skeptics between a rock and a hard place. They want to maintain a respect and even a certain level of outward reverence in regard to scripture as you know, a good source for uplifting and inspiring stories, motivational speeches, and that kind of thing. But the obvious question it raises is, wait a minute, would a good source of literature lie about its very nature? How good could such an inspiring book be when it is so out of touch and even delusional concerning its own genesis? For skeptics, such claims about Holy Scripture's divine authorship are a little embarrassing, kind of like that fundamentalist cousin who insists his oldest child was supernaturally healed by Jesus through prayer. These skeptics don't really have any place to hide these embarrassing supernatural claims found here and there all throughout Scripture. So what do they do? They elevate themselves above the Bible's authority and expect you to ask them now, the real authorities, the real experts, uh, 
whether such and such a passage should be considered authentic. Or, for example, is Peter's claim that I quoted earlier and Paul's claim that Scripture is divinely inspired and all of Jesus' statements to that same effect, are all these just examples of some zealous scribe, some well-meaning copyist down the line taking liberties by inserting lines like, men spoke from God into their handwritten copies of Scripture? These skeptics would have you believe that, as baseless as that may be. Nevertheless, it's still a card that the devil loves to play. Even today, it's always about creating doubt in God's word, isn't it? Getting back to the devil then, planting seeds of doubt, back in our gospel text, the devil's right at the point of trying to tempt Jesus into demonstrating his sonship, kind of showing it off, and satisfying his own body's hunger needs at the same time. If you're the son of God, turn these stones into bread, the devil invites Jesus. But it doesn't work. Nothing doing with Jesus. It is written, Jesus says, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Jesus there is quoting Deuteronomy chapter 8, and the bread reference there is the manna that came down from heaven. Jesus doesn't flinch. Later on, though, after Jesus begins calling his disciples and training them, the devil will try this temptation again with those more vulnerable candidates, the disciples. Satan will try to lure them away from completely trusting in God's word alone and see if he can't get them, Jesus' disciples, to rely instead on their own strength and resources. And that's certainly a realistic temptation for us modern disciples today, isn't it? And this is a big one to get right. Because if God's church does not champion God's word intact, inspired, inerrant, then we have nothing unique to offer this fallen world, do we? We are just a social club with a little philanthropy thrown in, like a lion's club, only they have more barbecues. So God help us to continue to champion his word in a world that seems to be increasingly hostile to it. But let's also keep the barbecues going. (laughs) So for the devil, there's strike one, a swing and a miss. The devil got nowhere in trying to get Jesus to look beyond his father's affirming words to confirm his identity as the son of God. So for Jesus, just hearing his father's word, that was sufficient. This is my son whom I love with him. I am well pleased. Likewise, I hope and pray that this is a swing and a miss also with you. Whenever the devil comes at you trying to trouble your tender conscience and stir up doubt concerning your relationship with God in Christ. Satan will use your sins, your vulnerabilities, your life's circumstances, and the people placed in your life even. Anything he can get his claws on to rattle you and get you to question your right standing before God. But know this, that with God, this is already a settled matter. Jesus died and rose for you. Your baptism joins you to Christ so that you should never give ground to the devil who would like to turn that cross into a question mark as regards your righteous standing before God. 
Those words to Christ Jesus are now words to you, too, as a baptized child of God. The Father says to you, this is my son, this is my daughter, whom I love. And for the sake of Christ Jesus, God also says to you, with you I am well pleased. So when the devil comes to you wagging his worm tongue, just add your amen to what God has already said about you. Say this to the devil. What God said about me being his child and about being well-pleased on account of Christ and his cross, amen to all that, devil. So then after whiffing on his first at-bat, the devil now digs his hooves deeper into the barren desert dust for his next attempt to cause Jesus to stumble. What's up this time? Satan himself comes armed with scripture. That's right. It's almost as if the tempter said, okay, Jesus, if you want to play Bible verse baseball, let's have a go here. This might come as a surprise, but the devil knows scripture and knows it probably better than you and I, sad to say. He doesn't trust in it, but he's known it for a long, long time and quotes it in verse 6 to Jesus. Right off the bat, however, we see that this deceitful tactic does not alarm Jesus. The devil may quote, or I should say misquote, quote out of context, the Holy Scriptures. That's true. But Jesus originated them, the Holy Scriptures. Jesus is the author of Scripture. So as we shall see, God's word is still the go-to weapon of choice against the devil. St. Paul calls God's word the sword of the Spirit. So Jesus here is crossing swords with the devil. From their perch then on the pinnacle of the temple now, which commentators estimate to be about 100 feet up there, looking down at the pavement below, the devil there again tries to get Jesus to question his identity or at least misuse his power as the Son of God. If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down. For it is written, quotes the devil, He will command his angels concerning you, lest you dash your foot against the stone. The devil there is quoting Psalm 91. We need not be impressed. Jesus counters with Deuteronomy 6. Again, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. God's word doesn't contradict itself. The devil's attempt here to pit one verse of scripture against another verse of scripture falls flat. As if looking up other verses should be a worrisome endeavor for a serious student of the Bible. It's not perilous at all. Indeed, it ends up being a good approach studying the Bible to gather as many scriptures together to understand its meaning. A fair approach to study any document is always to assume the best of that document right up front. In this case, that would be to assume that the Bible does not contradict itself unless proven otherwise. By the way... The fact that scripture does not contradict contradict itself is in itself a mark of genuine divine authorship. You think about it. How could some 40 different authors of the Bible on three different continents over a period of 1,400 years write in harmony with one another the 66 books of the Bible that all come together to form a unified tapestry of the story of salvation? How can they all find their fulfillment in the promised Messiah, Jesus Christ? How is all this possible apart from divine superintendence? 
the devil here thought it would be an advantage to use scripture on the second temptation attempt. But again, Jesus is the divine superintendent of all holy writ, along with the Holy Spirit himself and God the Father. So what the devil thought was a tactical advantage in quoting scripture himself just turns out to be another swing and a miss on his part. Strike two. Lesson learned. Scripture properly quoted trumps verses quoted out of context, like the devil tried to sneak by. This isn't the main lesson today. We're getting to that. But first, we have one more temptation to look at, and that's in verse 10. The devil goes for broke. Worship me, he tells Jesus in short. And this really is the angle Satan was working along the whole way anyway. If he could have gotten Jesus just to break down on any of these temptations by introducing even an ounce of doubt in Christ's heart, then he would have successfully sullied Jesus' pure trust in and complete obedience to his heavenly Father. Jesus would have, in effect, subscribed and submitted to Satan Incorporated, the devil's business machine. Jesus would have essentially brokered some kind of deal with the devil. <clears throat> the devil didn't need, after all, a demonic Jesus. Just a compromise Jesus would do. And the divine plan to save all humankind from their transgression and damnation, that would have been derailed. Thankfully, Jesus does not succumb. And after this last temptation, he gives the order, Be gone, Satan. That's another swing and a miss for you. And you just struck out. After this, whenever Jesus encounters demons in his earthly ministry, those demons tremble and plead for Jesus to give mercy on them. It would seem word travels fast in the dominion of darkness. Watch out for this Jesus. And that's really what we need to see here today. Overall, in this temptation account in our gospel lesson, this was not a one, two, three, how-to lesson on facing off with the devil through scriptural, scriptural memorization techniques and preparing an arsenal of Bible verses for use in any occasion. Now, these things can be good, mind you. Memorize scripture, that's helpful. But Martin Luther gets it right in his monumental hymn, A Mighty Fortress, when it comes to spiritual warfare. Quote, the old satanic foe has sworn to work us woe. With craft and dreadful might, he arms himself to fight. On earth is not his equal. Jude says, uh, that last little book right before the book of Revelation, one page, Jude says, if even Michael the archangel dared not to bring a reviling accusation against the devil, but said, the Lord rebuke you, then we certainly shouldn't go looking for trouble with an ageless enemy who's invisible to the human eye but can still, as the Apostle Paul points out, transform himself, himself into an angel of light. Um, we should not be poking around in those areas. I can't resist here continuing that next stanza in Luther's great hymn, A Mighty Fortress. Listen to this one. But now, but now a champion comes to fight whom God himself elected. You ask who this may be? The Lord of hosts is he. Christ Jesus, mighty Lord, God's only son adored. He holds the field victorious. 
Yes, Jesus is our champion. He holds the field victorious. Where Adam failed to resist the devil and plunged us into this messy, dark darkness to start it all off, and where Israel, 40 years in the wilderness, only proved over and over again that they could not live up to God's calling to be holy as he is holy, and whereas you and I, in our own strength, cannot master our own sinful tendencies, our sinful nature, or even consistently say no to everyday temptations. Jesus did say no to the devil and put the devil in his place. Jesus, the second Adam, tempted like us but without sin, did bind the strong man, the devil, and plunder his stolen goods, redeeming us by his innocent blood, the very blood that we will partake of later on in our service this morning. Jesus, the nation of Israel reduced to one faithful son, did fulfill the Father's will, being an obedient servant even unto death. Jesus, our champion, holds the field victorious, and he lowers himself down and scoops us up in his protective arms like little lambs held by the caring shepherd. And he will carry us through all our trials and temptations in this life and safely into the next life where there will be no more temptations and no more talking snakes. Amen. And now may he who began a good work in you bring it to completion on the day of Christ Jesus. Amen.